welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've gone over to the website. You're already probably a subscriber of Counterpunch Plus. Of course you are. If you're not, though, that is our subscriber section. That's what several years ago replaced our old print magazine, our dearly beloved print magazine, which simply was not viable in this age anymore. But we now have our subscriber area that is even being revamped, being upgraded. So go over to the website, get that subscription. It's a minimal cost per year, and you're going to have access to many perspectives on the left. Um, Counterpunch is pretty unique in in regards to what gets published there. Lots of competing perspectives, lots of competing ideas. That's one of the really great things about Counterpunch, and one of the reasons why I've been a supporter since well before I had this show. So go over to the website, get your subscription to that. And speaking of perspectives that are really important to hear, I have one of those with me today, an excellent guest who I've been meaning to speak with for months and months. It's uh, Volodya Artuk. Volodya is a PhD in sociology and social anthropology from Central European University. He is a postdoctoral researcher at Emptiness, Living Capitalism and Democracy under Post-Socialism at the School of Anthropology at Oxford. And uh, maybe most importantly, for those of us who have been following everything going on in Ukraine from the very beginning here, he is an editor at Commons Journal of Social Criticism, a very, very important source of information and analysis from the left in Ukraine. I would urge you to go over to the website commons.com.ua. That is a very important source for you to be supporting as well. Volodya, welcome to Counterpunch. Uh, Hello, hello. Thank you for the invitation, Eric, and thank you for your kind uh, mini advertisement of our uh, journal. Of course, it's one of the it's one of the sources that I lean on on a well, pretty much a daily basis. So thank you for that. Thank you to all of your comrades that you're working with to putting all of that information out. But let's begin with our conversation. I want to talk a lot about um, events of recent days, weeks, and months, but can you just introduce yourself and your work to our audience? Where do you come from? What is your background? And what thrust you into the research that you've been involved in these last years? Uh, Yes, sure. Um, So yeah, my, I was born in Ukraine, and uh, so uh, half of my life passed there. I uh, studied there a bit, and I was uh, quite a lot, and I was enculturated uh, kind of into, into Marxist thinking and some sort of a small, uh, did some, some small share of activism there. Uh, before uh, moving to to study further abroad, uh, uh, where I uh, decided to work on labor movement in Belarus, where I did field work uh, in uh, 2015 uh, to 2018. So that's kind of I have some sort of background knowledge of Belarus and have been following events there. And then I uh, got got interested in uh, in broader issues in the, the industrialization and out migration that's been happening in uh, many post-Soviet countries. It's like a generalized condition, and that's what our project Emptiness is is dealing with. Uh, and currently, I'm studying part uh, as part of this, that project. I'm studying uh, Ukrainian refugees. Uh, who, who fled the war, and uh, currently I'm I'm in uh, doing this in Romania, 
also one of the countries that has uh, have been influenced by this uh, post-Soviet transformation in a negative w- way. Uh, and apart from this, I also contribute to the debates about this uh, this uh, war, the Russo-Ukrainian war, on the left. Although I'm not, uh, I have to admit that I'm not a military, uh, I'm not a security or military uh, scholar. So. Uh, but I, th- I still I think that it's vital for the left to develop uh, um, a coherent and uh, comprehensive and nuanced, a nuanced picture of what's happening there. I think uh, that's what lacks. Uh, yeah, and I hope uh, I, I might help in this. Since you have so much background in Belarus, and Belarus has been trending on Twitter this week with all sorts of news and rumors coming out of Belarus, I do want to talk about a lot of those questions. But let's just focus on the left and the Ukraine question for a second, if we could, since you mentioned it. Um, How would you describe the debate on the left over the issue uh, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine or Russia's maybe second invasion of Ukraine, depending on who you ask? And um, why is it so important to intervene? in this discourse as somebody who comes from the region versus the discourse that you see among Western leftists? Uh, first, I would just clarify uh, this issue of, of expertise and being being from this region. Um, I would call for a cautious approach to people from the region, the, this kind of the, the voices of, the, of those who are suffering. Uh, because why do we value them is, is because they have the first-hand experience and uh, uh, more often than not knowledge of, of details, uh, but also they may be um, engaged on, on one side or the other in the ways that uh, we on the left probably uh, would find problematic. So that it's not an, it's, it's less of a question of where uh, the person comes from but and more, of the ability of this person to to co- to comprehend and and combine the the, the developments the the details of the situation there and uh, it's of course it's not exclusive to to people from Ukraine or or from from the area more broadly but it so happens that uh, our journal and the people people from from my circle have been following the events in Ukraine since way before uh, the start of the war uh, we've been writing on the political economy of, of that this country and the area we've been writing about the, the war in donbass and uh, all the on the complexities of this conflict so uh, th- this is kind of this is the, the, our contribution is important in this respect that uh, we uh, we are not newbies in this. We have we have some expertise that have been also uh, that have been also um, uh, checked by tried and checked in in some uh, practical activities in some sort of activism and organizing. Yeah, uh, but coming back to your uh, main question about the the debate on the left. Um, uh, it's not been of an extremely high quality in general. That's I think that's that's the main issue. We since the beginning of the war, we had uh, two 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 kind of two two approaches, two tendencies. One is a top down one uh, when you uh, like uh, 
Noam Chomsky or David Harvey, we depart from the big picture, from the um, global disposition of power, and then try to locate uh, this this conflict in a, uh, almost in a deductive manner, uh, without without knowing. The, the, the background without knowing the, the political and economic processes in, the, in, in, in this area. And that's been sort of a parallel plane that, that has dominated mostly the, the American left, to some extent, the European left. Uh, on the other hand, we had, uh, we had uh, more uh, particularistic or even singular a singular, singularistic approach focused on individual stories, on particular political developments, on um, assessments of personalities in, in Ukrainian and, and, and Russian history that do, do not add up uh, to, uh, to a systematic theoretical analysis of the situation. So these two kind of bottom and top-down approaches, they, they kind of can't find the middle ground somehow in a properly, as uh, you know, like if you take the classical Marxist texts like uh, 18th Brumaire or what uh, Gramsci's writings, they were in the middle ground. They were uh, theoretically informed, of course, but they were also very... Uh, deeply uh, immersed into the into the situation on the ground, so we we lack such so, such sort of texts. They are very rare. We don't they they don't not absent, but they are very rare. And I say it also as a sort of self criticism. And uh, what what uh, the the lack of uh, this middle ground. Uh, Mid, mid midterm and mid level analysis gave us is this uh, simplistic polarization on, on, on the left uh, where you have uh, uh, nowadays uh, we have this kind of pro peace uh, movement uh, in, in all sorts of ways people who call themselves anti anti militarists uh, who uh, uh, have this kind of who who are maximalists in, in a way that they want to stop stop the war now, and it's uh, sometimes it feels like they have a magical switch that they can just turn this off and it will stop. And uh, who whoever doesn't want to stop it is imperialist is uh, is is a, is a bad guy. Of course, it's extremely simplistic. It's just uh, I mean, if you read. Uh, Writings by Engels in the 19th century, who was uh, very skilled in military issues. I mean, this this is not this is not how how Marxists like treat uh, war. It's, it's just it's it's an autonomous process, and uh, it, it can't be just stopped. Uh, but uh, of of course, you, you we should all uh, of course agree that. Uh, uh, Conflicts, military conflicts, as such, are bad, and of course, they need. The, it's better if they didn't exist. On the other hand, uh, we have um, a position that um, is um, focused only on Russia-Ukrainian conflict, only on this minutia of offensives and counteroffensives, or of, of the delivery of weapons and 
and and uh, the extent of the losses and this blown up picture this uh, very detailed and fine, fine grained picture leads people into uh, ignoring uh, ignoring the global effects that, that this conflict have and these global effects go beyond the threat, the threat of uh, Russian imperialism. It, it brings about all sorts of, sorts of developments that are detrimental, such as uh, yeah, militarization and uh, abuse uh, of uh, power by the industrial military complex in the West and so on. So th- this, these issues also should be traced and, and taken into account. It's, but it's a struggle and it's kind of a th- hard work, uh, hard work uh, of uh, theoretical work to uh, uh, account for all of these processes. And I don't really see this happening somehow. Uh, what I see more is uh, deafness on, 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 on both sides and the lack of platforms that uh, that would uh, that would uh, allow for such theoretical uh, for such theoretical work and places like uh, counterpunch or uh, uh, at times even uh, Jacobin they they allow for such for such work but it still is uh, we are not there yet and it's worrisome because. This 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 conflict is 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 dramatic. It progresses very quickly, and we may be late at some moment. You know, there's many ways that I could take the conversation to follow up on that. But from a from a theoretical perspective, uh, one of the aspects of the debates that I've seen you engaged in quite a lot, and it's been fascinating to watch, is the issue um, among various various academics and scholars both from the uh from eastern europe and the post-soviet space but also internationally and it centers around this question of quote-unquote decolonization so can you talk a little bit about what well, the term decolonization how it's used how it's employed but more specifically how it's been employed in the context of russia's invasion of ukraine and all of the sort of theoretical debates that have emerged out of that uh, it's it's a difficult question for me for for many reasons. Uh, um, first of all, I'm not a fan of this term in in, in general. Of the uh, I'm not a fan of the theoretical tradition that has been developed around around this notion. It's um, and I'm not sure that that we on, on the left benefit so much from from it from discussing. From discussing anti-colonial struggle in these terms, because to me this is it it, fo- it it's it focuses too much on the symbolic. It's uh, it's it's uh, it, at times it's uh, has this um, contradictory tendency of on the one hand relativizing and. Uh, um, and stressing all sorts of hybridities and so on, but on the other hand, uh, re- reifying certain identities or certain groups, and I, I don't really like this this approach. It's not really rooted in in in, in, in an understanding of a material reality that drives the uh, the solution of uh, 
imperialist political unities and so on. So, and, and that, that's why I don't like it now when it's applied to uh, to the context of the Russo-Ukrainian war. In many ways, it uh, it it's it, in many ways it's, it it does more harm than good. So the general framework uh, uh, along um, the, the general f- framework along. Uh, um, which uh, relies on the notion of the colonization is that uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian people have essentially been uh, colonized by Russia in its many instances, in Soviet Union, uh, imperialist, uh, imperial Russia, Tsarist Russia, Soviet Union, and until recently, uh, some sort of agents of Russian influence or whatever who were striving for colonization. I, I find this uh, historical, the assertion of this historical continuity problematic for many reasons. Uh, one of them is, ironically, is that it mirrors Putin's view of the Russian history. For Putin, there is a, a continuity. There are no breaks between Tsarist Russia and and the Soviet Union and the Russia that exists now. So Putin revives this kind of glory, this eternal glory that doesn't never materially exist. Russian history is a history of breaks, of revolutions, of revolts, uh, then calcifications, of course, but it's it's a constant upheaval. And of course, Putin wants to erase it. Uh, it's, it's in his interest, of course, to um, impose this continuity and present himself as the as the the figure that revives the, the good old times. Uh, but what uh, the guys who call themselves, who think they work in the colonial perspective, they reproduce this discontinuity. Uh, they avoid fine-grained analysis. Not all of them, of course, not all of them. There are some good, uh, good, 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 good studies, more uh, historically, uh, uh, nuanced, uh, but uh, <clears throat> those who are uh, closer to kind of policy narratives rather than, or uh, let's say academic polit- politics rather than research proper, they reflect, uh, they mirror uh, this continuity where uh, in, in, in all instances, Ukraine eternally have been colonized. It's, it's just factually not true. Uh, there were periods uh, when Ukrainians themselves, a lot of a lot of Ukrainians, contributed to uh, the uh, development of Russian Empire, uh, and this is not a great thing to do. And uh, th- this is not a great thing to uh, repress. Uh, it's it, it's it's something that Ukrainians also need to deal with and to understand that some of the cultural figures that are celebrated. They have been complicit, of course, in the development of Russian Empire. And, and then the Soviet Union, of course, is is a completely... Uh, it, it's a thing uh, that nowadays it's even hard to talk about uh, on, on public because in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe, it's been vilified even legally in, in, in some respects. But uh, it, it's also is, is Ukraine uh, was a constituent member of Soviet Union and at, at times 
it uh, benefited from uh, the Soviet economic and even cultural policies. At times, it suffered immensely uh, during Stalinism. Uh, so it was also uh, a hugely, hugely uh, complex, complex development. Mm-hmm. But you, what my point would be that uh, in order to state the obvious that this war uh, is is an imperialist war, you you don't need to uh, make some kind of artificial historical justifications for this. It's kind of obvious that uh, uh, if you listen to what Russian propagandists and, and Decision makers say, "It's it, yeah, it's a war of uh, conquest. It's it's a war of uh, cultural, social subjugation. It, it's kind of a textbook case of an imperialist war. And uh, whether it's rooted in some sort of long history, long durée of oppression, I'm not so sure. And it must be debated. But uh, what is happening? What uh, what what?" Uh, consequences this does uh, this uh, ahistorical and reifying approach uh, brings is uh, destroying any possibility of uh, solidarity uh, among uh, anti-war Russians and uh, and Ukrainians and representatives of other uh, other polities and nations. Uh, uh, people who talk about the coloniality, they claim that they uh, create a sort of uh, a unity, a union, a common front against Russian imperialism. But what is happening, in fact, is uh, is a, a fight for victimhood, a fight for asserting who is who is who suffered more whose identity has been more repressed and needs to be revived. So the practical consequences are quite detrimental to uh, to the actual real-life fight against uh, Russian imperialism. It does strike one as some kind of an essentialized identity politics or a variant of identity politics the way that it is wielded, I think. It does, it does. Now, the other aspect of this that really strikes me and one that always jumps to my mind every time I read some of these debates about decolonization in the context of Eastern Europe and especially in the context of Ukraine is the fact that uh, despite whatever um, positive intentions and positive attributes the debate itself may have, I think lurking in the back of the mind is the ever-present point that uh, those uh, in the West and in the Western ruling class and the strategic planners and so forth would love to weaponize this type of terminology, would love to use it in furtherance of their own strategic goals, whether that's NATO or whether that's the United States itself or what have you, right? Weaponizing the term decolonization in this debate is useful for them. So there is that other aspect to this where debating decolonization then also kind of leads you into debating well should we all just you know support the collapse of russia into 25 constituent parts and you know the remaking of the entire eurasian landmass under the heading of decolonization i think that might be problematic yeah it leads it leads us astray it it distracts us from more kind of you know 
realistic real life concerns that that we might have and this are this are not splitting russia apart it's uh, we are way uh, way uh, short of reaching this this kind of question it's history doesn't pose the questions to us that we discuss in, in you see those you see that kind of stuff on twitter i see it all yeah, the time yeah. people posting yeah. maps of oh you know the future of russia under decolonization it's like come on let's get serious mm. yeah unfortunately this 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 exists it's not again it's it's not to say that uh, there is no such thing as uh, some sort of uh, you know chauvinistic uh attitude of some russian intellectuals even anti-war intellectuals and so on but it's but it's it's not some kind of you know uh, genetic feature of any russian as, as it's sometimes portrayed even on the left uh, definitely it's not the case absolutely and i want to just quickly before we take a break i want to i want to just ask you how the debate on this question exists within the ukrainian left because you know there's obviously competing perspectives even among the ukrainian left so uh could you just sketch out a little bit the extent to which uh the decolonization debate is raging within the ukrainian left i wouldn't say it's it's raging um I wouldn't say there is there is much of a heated debate in a, in a way it's it's to a large extent is uh, muted. Uh, it, it, there are different approaches, uh, but they not they don't really clash. I would say it's because uh, the Ukrainian left have uh, has more uh, burning concerns, and uh, also because it's 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 in a way uh, difficult. Like tactically, it's it's probably not the wisest thing to do now to lead uh, the debate uh, in, into this symbolic symbolic domain. Uh, but there, there are um, uh, there are approaches. On the one hand, is more this more rush, uh, ra- radical approach, which is about uh, splitting Russia into into parts and tracing all sorts of. Uh, you know the the, the, the colonial uh, epistemologies, like in this kind of uh, in in this intricate symbolic game of looking for influence of Russian imperialism everywhere in texts, in, uh, in textbooks, in language, and so on. So uh, some some on the left they they do pursue this this path. Uh, that is uh, sometimes justified uh, by uh, references to Marxist classics, to uh, Ukrainian Marxists uh, that uh, lived before the Stalinist purges in the twenties. Uh, the the other the other uh, the, the other uh, wing, which is more pragmatic, which I belong to in a way. Uh, yeah, we don't just simply don't embrace this this lens we don't think that this is both tactically beneficial to us and theoretically robust valid uh, but in general it's it's is a debate that I kind of have uh, not with Ukrainian leftists let's put it this way 
That makes sense. And it's a debate that exists certainly in the United States and in other parts of Europe in different contexts. And I think that it's important to interrogate how it's being applied in the context of Ukraine and Russia and the post-Soviet space. But let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to tackle a, a couple of other uh, somewhat controversial issues. And then I want to talk a bit about what's going on in Belarus, because unfortunately, we don't get nearly enough uh, solid analysis of what's happening there. So stick with us on the other side of the break. I'm chatting with Volodya Artuk. You could go and follow him on social media. And again, make sure you go over to commons.com.ua to follow uh, what's going on in Ukraine from the left and uh, enjoy the music. We will be right back. chatting with Volodya Artuk. Again, the website commons.com.ua. Just keep plugging that. Make sure you bookmark it. Make it part of your everyday news consumption rotation. Uh, Volodya, I want to ask you about another subject that is also quite prominent in the discourse online, in the discourse around the war in uh, Ukraine, and that is the issue of a quote-unquote proxy war. You've talked about this many times. I've been fascinated to see some of the debates around this issue. Can you explain how you see the use of the term proxy war to describe mm -hmm. war in uh, Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine? And secondly, of course, why you think it's problematic? Mm -hmm. uh, I consider the notion of proxy war one instance of a zombie concept that, that 
that existed since since decade uh, since since years to many years to describe what was going on in Ukraine since Donbass war. We had many concepts like this, like purposefully vague, like hybrid war, uh, hybrid warfare, uh, kinetic war. These these sorts of imprecise concepts that are neither properly are properly defined and used in in the military circles or in in among in in, in Marxist writing, but then they somehow jump out of jump out of the uh, political speeches uh, out of some sort of. Um, uh, amateurish analysis of, of the war. I, I just don't don't find it useful. Uh, I it's used by by everyone. Is essentially, we we uh, have uh, American politicians, both Democrats and, and Republicans, using this concept. We have some uh, on the American military establishment using this concept. It's also used uh, on the left by, by the people who like Mearsheimer for some reason. They're, they're used, of course, by the Russian propaganda copiously. Uh, it's meant to convey some sort of vague idea that uh, what's going on in Ukraine is defined by external powers and that that by doing something, by pressing on these external powers, we can stop the war. Uh, so uh, it, but it's 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 so imprecise that it can be wedded uh, to any ideology. It can be used to prove any any uh, any point. Uh, not least because. Since we live in the world of imperialism, every conflict is in a way interna- internationalized. The, the smallest civil conflicts are internationalized and could be called proxy wars in a way. Uh, so it's it, it has no definition of power. It has no like, the theoretical potency, and it's uh, it's only used uh, to cover some sort of. To, to, to cover someone's lack of evidence to prove the point rather than uh, demonstrate uh, the, the, the this point uh, what what we need to look behind this concept of uh, hybrid war uh, is to the alignment of interests in, in this in, in this or that conflict uh, we have interests of of Ukrainian and Russian workers, we have interests of uh, Ukrainian and Russian elites, and we have inf- in interests of the American elites and uh, of the Chinese uh, ruling power, and they all align in a way, and they misalign. Uh, their targets diverge, and but there are points where they converge, and it's our tasks as analysts, as theoreticians, to as as people who. You know, claim to at least uh, be faithful to materialist analysis to find these points where the interests align, and then they, when they contradict and diverge, and act based on uh, this this idea. But what what the 
the concept of hybrid world does it it shrouds this uh, it it conceals the uh, fine grained picture from us uh, and yeah and that's it and that's why uh, i uh, from for some time already i abandoned discussing this quarreling with people over this concept because yeah i realize it's 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 quite useless uh, to do it it's just simply probably one needs to be uh, assertive and uh, frame the discussion in more uh, down-to-earth uh, empirically driven uh, terms the way that it's formulated in the united states among the left uh, is basically the idea that this is a proxy war because without the united states there would be no war this is a U.S. proxy war because without U.S. weapons and U.S. arm twisting, both arm twisting of European allies, arm twisting of Zelensky himself and other forces, without that, there would be no war. Therefore, this is a proxy war being driven by Russia and the United States. And if only we could pressure the U.S. government, that would end. That's quite literally the extent. Of yeah, the yeah, I know. I, I know. I know this is this, this argument. It's quite simplistic. Uh, recently, I noticed another layer added to it is that. It's Delensky who is actually wagging the dog or whatever. It's, it's Zelensky who will, who is interested in driving the world to 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 the global war, to the World War Three. And uh, now the Americans are kind of victims, uh, pr- prisoners of his of his whims. So it's kind of works both ways. But uh, uh, I. I don't, I don't find this, this uh, both, both of these arguments persuasive. I don't think that the war was started because the U.S. was interested in it. I think, on the contrary, that at that conjuncture, at a late uh, 2021, U.S. was the least interested in uh, this con- conflict. Uh, uh, appearing, uh, bur- bursting out. Uh, uh, and I don't think that uh, the U.S. can single-handedly stop this conflict. I don't think that uh, if the U.S. decides to stop the delivery of weapons, the conflict will end uh, because, I mean, who was delivering weapons to the Iraqis all, all, all of these years or to Afghans? Someone was, someone was, and someone will to Ukraine because that's how the arms market works. There is demand, there is supply. It's just that the weapons, if, if the U.S. doesn't deliver high-tech weapons, someone would deliver low-tech weapons, and this will lead to an even more bloody and protracted and uh, uh, ugly uh, ugly war. Uh, so I don't think that these this are particularly humane uh, arguments that uh, some on the left have. I don't think they are about the value of life of Ukrainians. It's rather about uh, fear, uh, the fear, which is understandable. We are all afraid of a, a larger war between the U.S. And, and, uh, and Russia breaking out. We are afraid of it. We are afraid of Russian nuclear blackmail. But there, there is no simple solution to this fear. Uh, there is no simple way to to shield ourselves against it and 
It's just we just need to face it that this is the dangerous times we live in. And of course, capitalism is, is, is at fault and, and whatever, but we can't stop capitalism, you know, and, and we have it's, it's a larger horizon than we can tackle with our forces and our resources. Uh, so yeah, in uh, to put it briefly, I, I think um, that uh, these simplistic uh, explanations uh, they, uh, they 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 lack they lack in in, in both empirical and theoretical uh, grasp of reality, and they are used uh, more uh, internally for for internal purposes, some kind of factional debates and and. and and so on, rather than for uh, describing reality. One interesting thing I notice um, in discussions on the left about Ukraine is the way in which Zelensky becomes instrumentalized. Zelensky as an individual and as a leader becomes instrumentalized depending on people's perspectives. Either either Zelensky is you know this this global icon and uh, you know face of resistance and all of that as liberals will present him as, and uh, or some sections of the left paint Zelensky as some kind of you know monomaniacal diabolical villain who is able to you know pull the strings of god only knows what um and somewhere in the middle i think we can find something more concrete for describing zelensky i mean to me and the way that i've always described zelensky is a fairly standard neoliberal politician who has kind of maneuvered his way into a position of power and has kind of played the different sides against each other to the extent possible. This was true in his rise from jumping from Kolomoisky to other oligarchs to then trying to sideline them and using the Europeans to balance against them. It seems just a fairly deft maneuver for a political for, for a politician. But I want to give you a chance to describe Zelensky from your perspective and some of the moves that he's made, of course, the neoliberal, quote unquote, reforms, refor- anti-labor reforms, attacking trade unions and so forth, and aligning with the sort of neoliberal consensus in Europe. But can you explain Zelensky, some of these contradictory uh, views that people have and why you think that is? Uh, first of all, I think that that you are right in in in, in your description of, of Zelensky. I think he's uh, a kind of um, a homologue of Macron uh, in, in Eastern Europe, or some other figures like Chaputova and and and, and some others. Uh, there was this wave of. Uh, extreme center, radical center populism, so some sort of neoliberal populism. It, it exists. Volodya, I'm uh, sorry. Can I just add? I would also put Barack Obama in the category of people that I've yeah, associated with Zelensky. Yeah, hope, and ch- hope and change, a different ethnic background yeah, from yeah. the prior, you know, precedents and so forth, presenting to unite the country after a very fractious period. I mean, that was quite literally mm-hmm. what propelled Obamaism, hope and change, mm-hmm, etc. Yeah, also uh, probably uh, in terms of comparison with Obama, a a very successful media and and PR campaign. But of course, Zelensky uh, is is a very skillful uh, is a very skillful uh, media personality and manager, and uh, and so on. Indeed, uh, he he he's a businessman, right? A media businessman, and his his whole campaign. was drawing on his uh, experiences as, as a, 
as a as a this this sort of media star, media businessman, part part of the uh, kind of international Eastern European sort of uh, cultural business, yeah, cultural industry, uh, and his campaign was was he he was. Uh, explicitly neoliberal in his in his campaign uh in initially uh he won over most of ukraine because uh, he uh he managed to bridge this proverbial west east divide because he was promising everything to everyone uh and of course with the development of his career as every Ukrainian president, in fact, he had to balance uh, between various factions of uh, previous uh, political pe- legacy political groups. And as every president, he was failing. And by the end of his career, his uh, approval rating was falling uh, dramatically. Uh, and the war uh, raised him uh, to the... Yeah, the fact that he actually, yeah, the fact that he managed to stay in Kiev, the fact that he uh, managed to uh, uh, to find right people to advise him, to put him in important positions, it helped him to uh, revive his image. And he is, I think, he is genuinely popular in Ukraine, even if he distrusts the ratings, the the polls. You would say that people do think he's a good like wartime manager. Mm. What brought him to uh, this, the changes in, in his positions, for example, that initially he was kind of more willing to, to communicate with Putin and then he abandoned it and uh, punished uh, uh, some pro-Russian parties or, or parties that are considered pro-Russian in Ukraine and that... Uh, Attracted Putin's uh, rage. Uh, it's 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 still not clear to me why it happened. On the one hand, uh, on the one hand, there was a pressure from the far right, uh, from the extreme nationalists and associated movements. On the other hand, there was probably uh, quite a lot of fear in Zelensky's team uh, that uh, there will there will be a comeback of uh, the uh, politicians who rely on uh, the East. Of Ukraine as their support base, and I'm not sure what was more important. I think this, this, these two factors, they uh, coalesced, and then there was a factor of Putin, the external threat, and I think that Zelensky um, was already concerned about uh, the war, uh, the expansion of the war in Donbass in 2021 before the war. I don't think that he was oblivious as some people think mm. but anyway uh, he uh, with the start of the war uh, he did manage to revive his image and uh, conduct I think a more a clever clever media policy clever uh, clever and subtle ways of messaging in, within Ukraine uh, because what we see, on, on the face, uh, on, on uh, something that is, of course, uh, spread by uh, pro-Russians, the pro-Russian guys on the left, and some uh, who are not pro-Russian, but 
kind of morality of Ukrainian is this sort of na- nationalist revisionist tendencies in Ukraine, uh, restriction on the use of Russian language, uh, glorification of these mid-war uh, far-right figures, and so on. So this is all happening. But what is also happening is that uh, there are voices that are close to Zelensky's uh, administration who talk to Russian-speaking populations, who try to explain to them what's happening. And but here I mean Aristovich, for example. Uh, this is a clever policy. Why? Um, but also beneath, underneath it, of course, it's a classical thing. What what would a neoliberally minded politician dependent on the West do? He would use the war, the state of emergency, to promote uh, to promote flexibilization of the labor market, to uh, discuss plans of uh, privatization of state assets, and, and all, all of these things. Uh, which are counterintuitive for a country in war, but that's happening, that's happening. Uh, why he is uh, such a polarizing figure in, in the West? Uh, it's uh, uh, because he's so visible, uh, because his kind of, his, his star shines bright and attracts all the eyes and that, that's it. I think it's just people uh, being uh, caught in this PR game and... Uh, yeah, I don't see much behind uh, much behind it. There is also, at least in the United States and certainly elsewhere among the far right and among the propaganda that is promoted by the far right, I should say by the pro-Russian far right, which makes up the vast majority of the global far right. Uh, the pro-Russian far right also uses a tremendous degree of anti-Semitic tropes in characterizing Zelensky, right? Because of course, the idea protocols of the elders of Zion and others of the Jew who pulls the strings behind the world powers to create the problems, right? So you do have the Russians seemingly weaponizing that element of it. And you see actually see it all over the place. If you have the stomach to read uh, far right propaganda in the United States context, that would be like Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon types, the Trump, the far right Trump, element, they cast Zelensky in that way. And unfortunately, those elements of the left that often parallel some of those talking points, maybe strip it of the anti-Semitic content, but still promote much of the same narrative, which is, of course, I think quite ludicrous if you understand the actual balance of forces globally and where Zelensky fits in in the global architecture. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Surprisingly, this is all but absent in Ukraine. Uh, That's, uh, yeah. I can't. Uh, I, I can't recall lots of examples of that. But some sometimes it uh, these anti-Semitic tropes they resurface in Russian propaganda, but even there it's not much. So it's um, yeah, well, it's kind of old school uh, fascism that exists in the U.S. is is not really in fashion here that much. Yeah, it's 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 the fascist it's the fascist worldview that is embedded in what we might call the conspiracy theory ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Those that mm-hmm. consume what you you know the conspiracy media ecosystem online, they absorb these tropes, and it, it you know whether they call it the New World Order or the Illuminati or any other formulation of that you know protocols of the Elders of Zion sort of concept, it ultimately always kind of ends with the very basic kind of anti-Semitic concept. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, anyway, that's interesting. It, yeah. It's a it's a it's a it's an important feature of the far right in the United States. And of course, as we know, Russia is deeply embedded in supporting far right movements all over the place. So this is, I think, part of the picture as well. But we are running out of time, Vologi. I want to talk with you a little bit in the last few minutes we have here about the situation in Belarus. We are recording here in the middle of May. I don't know exactly what's going to happen by the time people hear this, but at this moment, there were rumors over the last several days that the dictator in Belarus Lukashenko was sick, hadn't been seen at several important ceremonies, and there was talk that perhaps high-level officials from Russia were going to Belarus in some kind of an emergency capacity. So we don't yet know. Uh, A photo, I think, emerged today showing Lukashenko allegedly as a proof of life, but we'll see what that actually means. But anyway... That's just the background of what's happening today. Volodya, I know you have, you've been in Belarus in, in the prior decade. You did a lot of field work there and research there. I would ask you, and I know this is hard to condense into one response here, but if you could, can you just very briefly, for those people who don't know, explain how Belarus has operated since the end of the Soviet Union? What kind of a state is it? How does it function? And then importantly, what happened in 2020 that led to the protests and what's happened since? Oh, yeah, that's a super hard task indeed. Uh, so briefly, Belarus was uh, a Bonapartist, kind of Caesarist type of uh, polity uh, in, and a successful one at that most of the time. Why it became like this, why Lukashenko rose to power? He was one of the first populist leaders in, in post-Soviet space, like properly populist uh, and also skillful at that. Uh, he managed to take the power of both uh, nomenclatura and uh, the working class and concentrate this power around him in his presidential office and then uh, punish those mm-hmm. who tried to take it back. and. Throughout his whole career, uh, he was carefully measuring sticks and carrots, uh, dividing uh, various groups of small and larger entrepreneurs and uh, wannabe opposition leaders. Everything was atomized uh, and working class was, was atomized despite some, uh, uh, despite the preservation of industrial uh, industrial sector in the economy. Uh, And meanwhile, uh, Lukashenko meant uh, to develop some sort of independent politics internationally. And he was trying to attach to the Chinese, uh, to the growing Chinese influence and insert himself in this Belt and Road initiative. And uh, thereby he developed a middle class in Belarus and uh, working class was preserved in uh, some sort of capacity. And when these rising or uh, persisting classes uh, got tired uh, of him, when in in a classical manner, productive forces entered into contradiction with uh, relations of production in Belarus, yeah, it, it, it emerged in, 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 in this form of this populist uprising against a populist politician, because the, the uprising in, in 2020 was, was indeed populist. The Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya was, was, was someone who was very close to Zelensky in a way. Uh, and 
and it broke down uh, this model of populist rule it broke down and it uh, degenerated uh, into uh, yeah a, a pretty classical uh, the, the kind of despotic rule uh, authoritarianism that is purely based on violence and pretty much on, on, on nothing else with uh, losing his legitimacy, Lukashenko also lost the the game of balancing on the international scene, and he's completely dependent on Russia. And his bad health is kind of symbolically uh, matches uh, the, his his trajectory as a leader. Uh, he's he's being kind of on life support. I mean, I'm not sure whether he's physically on life support, but. His, his rule one was on, on life support of uh, from Russia and from uh, the police uh, domestically. Uh, what and a lot, uh, really a lot, will depend on on, on 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 his persona. If he's if he dies soon in in months or years, uh, I can't predict what's going to happen with Belarus. I only know that now. Uh, there are some signs that the elites in Belarus are quite anxious, quite anxious. They uh, there would be infighting and there would be some uh, clans or groups that would be supported by Russia and there would be domestic uh, people who, who would promote some kind of domestic agendas, more independent, and that will lead to some sort of infighting. Uh, but yeah, in general, uh, I don't see any kind of prospect of... Uh, and a new popular uprising in Belarus because simply because there are no resources. People are either abroad or in jail or uh, scared to death. So I don't think anything progressive will come out of this. But this is, is it's, it's really is some kind of important development because as we know, these authoritarian uh, countries, uh, they are quite brittle if it comes to uh, the change of power. And with respect to Belarus, I mean, you, you mentioned the opposition, uh, you know, in the reading that I've done, I guess you could say the opposition really breaks down into different categories. There's certainly the internationally well-known opposition, which is uh, led now from, I think, Lithuania in exile, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But there was also this sort of uh, a more explicitly left-wing opposition that existed in 2020 that has also gotten scattered. But I also know that many of them have gone underground. And so I suppose the question really becomes, I mean, is there an underground that might reemerge after all of this happens? Because of course, the repression was so severe, many killed, many jailed, um, seems impossible to even know. I don't think they are under, I mean, it's, these are they are as atomized as the left. I mean, the Belarusian left is as atomized as uh, the rest of the population. I know that there are some groups of people who uh, gather and read Marx. Uh, uh, there are some who left who are in exile, and there are some who produce some sort of videos uh, and and so on. But they don't. They never had a mobilizing capacity that extent and I don't think there will be a sort of a power to uh, a considerable power in case of uh, disturbances uh, it's not their time at all uh, there are 
there are probably that there are probably some individuals or small groups in Belarus that are that have been involved, engaged in sabotage or uh, some sort of violent activities, but I that they showed no no signs of life as of recent recent months. So it's 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 hard to say what's happening underground in Belarus. And the public left in Belarus is basically tokenized, much like the so-called communists of Russia. I mean, are they? Do they even represent an actual left, or are they just reactionary chauvinists? There are the two. Uh, importantly, there are two communist parties in Belarus. One uh, was in the opposition to Lukashenko party, the original communist party, and uh, the other one was uh, a token. Yeah, really a token movement, not representing anything. Uh, uh, this. Uh, Opposition, the, the the Communist Party, which is in opposition, is not banned yet. Maybe it was, will be banned soon, but uh, they, of course, have toned down significantly their criticism. Uh, they are kind of they are keeping low profile. Uh, they are probably they they are doing some kind of purely symbolic symbolic acts, not explicitly directed against uh, against Lukashenko. But I am not sure how much power they have. I, I, I don't think they, they, they also have, they also not, not something to reckon, reckon with. One of the um one of the first one of the issues that people forget about when they talk about the war in Ukraine is the fact that six weeks before or eight weeks before the Russians invaded in February of 2022, the Russians sent a, a military expedition into Kazakhstan to intervene in an uprising there and to prop up a, a friendly government under well Nazarbayev and then Tukayev. Um, and so the question would be. What's the likelihood that the Russians militarily militarily intervene in Belarus if the situation gets chaotic? Do you see that on the horizon if Putin feels the need to sort of shore up that flank? It seems like a tremendous liability for Russia in its war in Ukraine if its partner in Belarus is in chaos. So what do you think? Well, de- definitely they will do it. And uh, I, I think they are preparing grounds for it, uh, for this. They are. Uh, I'm sure they are recruiting... Uh, local military officials, they are establishing horizontal ties with them, uh, with the security uh, agency KGB in Belarus. I'm sure they are trying to establish these ties and I'm sure that Lukashenko is working against it. And since we see that his power is is shrinking, uh, that Russians will step up the efforts to recruit uh, local elites. And they would also, of course, they would hope uh, that they would not have to resort to violence in Belarus, but in case uh, it's necessary, uh, uh, yeah, well, uh, I'm sure they would do it. Uh, it will be some sort of, you know, uh, a, a, another special operation. But I'm, I'm not. I, I really am not sure to what extent Belarusian army or some parts of special services, uh, secret services, will be uh, opposing this. So it's it's really hard to predict, but uh, yeah, but I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that if I was Putin, I would already be working very hard with local politicians, with local uh, military and uh, secret services.
I think we can assume that's happening, and I guess we will wait and see in the coming weeks. Uh, Volodya Artuk has been my guest today. He is the uh, one of the editors at Commons, a journal of social criticism, the website commons.com.ua. Uh, follow the work there. Follow Volodya on social media. Volodya, thank you so much for coming to Counterpunch and talking with us today. Really appreciate your analysis. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Listeners, viewers, thank you as always, and we appreciate the support. We'll talk to you again next time. Thank you.